Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. I see some of my old school saints, they got the classics. You got, you got your physical copy. But it doesn't mean that we're better, right? We have the digital copy. Or we have also on the screen the word of God on the present. And if you would, read along as I read out loud. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 to 24. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. When we come to service on Sunday, Maybe you grew up and you're in church service. Inevitably, there are going to be little infants, little babies in the service. And it's a wonderful thing. But just give it time. One child, a little infant, is going to start to cry. And when this happens, we typically see one parent stand up, take the baby, go outside and try to soothe the child. Sometimes the parent could stay in the room and soothe the baby, not have to go out by giving the baby, baby a pacifier. But then there are some times where the pacifier is not going to work. The baby is going to holler even more, even after taking the pacifier, because the pacifier is fundamentally alive. It is a lie because the pacifier says or is tricking the baby into, oh, I'm about to get fed. But there is nothing coming out of the pacifier. So this child who is potentially hungry is going to rise up. Those of us who have kids, we know this, how this goes, right? You're in a space where you just want to relax and be in worship and you just hope the baby doesn't make a lot of noise. Well, even if the baby does make noise, here's the, whatever you call it, the nook, the pacifier, whatever you call the pacifier to put in the baby's mouth. But the baby wises up and realizes there is no milk coming out of this pacifier. Therefore, they are going to scream until they get the proper nourishment they are looking for. Amen. Talk to them. <laughs> yeah. This is what I want us to know. And I want us to think about this. Many people come to church Sunday after Sunday, not to feast, but to be pacified. That's good. They want enough to make them feel like they're being fed. But in essence, they're not being fed at all. So they leave a Sunday service feeling good. But then the week happens, 
and they realize something is missing. Something doesn't feel right. I, I need more, and I know what I need. I need more of the Lord. So what would this person do? This person may go to a community group, which is good. These things I'm about to mention are not bad things. But this person may go to a community group. But notice, they go and the community group does not last at the night, but it doesn't last forever, and they leave. I need more. So the person may, another day, get in the car and put on some worship music. If you're like me, you will put a song on, maybe your favorite song, and from the point you leave home to where you're going, you're in worship. It feels wonderful. Tears may even be streaming down your face. It feels great. But then the song is turned off. I gotta go to work. I gotta go do something. I'm missing something. It's not sticking. Maybe I get my, my, my phone and I get to go to my apps and I go to where I can listen to sermons and this is my favorite preacher. And I'm going to listen to a Tim Carroll or Dr. Tony Evans or whoever that may be. And I'm going to listen to a good sermon. I play the sermon. And I, I, I'm learning. I get it. But then the sermon goes off. I'm missing something. What's going on? Why is nothing sticking? Which brings me to this. This month, we're going to do a new sermon series. We're starting today called The Power of Knowing God. And this is what I want to explore in this series. I want to explore if it is possible for us to intimately know who God is. Can God meet me? And can we meet together in the minutia of life, the mundane? The exciting and the not so exciting things taking place in my life. Can God, can I meet with Him? Does He want to meet with me? Can I know God experientially and not just here? Because I feel like that if He could, if I could sense His presence with me always, that even when the sermon goes on, even when I'm not around the community group, which is a wonderful thing, when I'm not listening to a worship song or a gospel song, I still sense that God is walking with me. Like Paul and any other of the biblical people that long for God, we cannot be satisfied with things that won't satisfy. We cannot. Like the pacifiers. We can't be satisfied with things that won't give us what we need. We must reject pacification or the religious ceremony. Now let me say this. I know what this is like to come to a Sunday service thinking that I'm going to get all, you know we use language like I just want to be fed. Feed me. Right? I'm coming into this space and and so we go through all of the, 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 the religious movements, right? We, we stand, we sing, we're led by Caleb, and we, we belt out and we sing with her. We pray, we, we're, we're led in confession time. We do all of this. We even come and take communion. And we leave, and no sooner than we get to the door and to our car, we already begin to feel like 
we already begin to feel like I'm still hungry. What's going on? Therefore, my question for you this morning, and it, it is a serious question. How hungry are you to know God? That's good. How hungry are you to know him? So we're going to begin this series by looking at Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. And this series is going to be like a building. They're going to build on one another. So we, this is the first one. But I hope this begins to whet our appetite as we think about the question, how hungry are we to know God? See, Jeremiah, when he writes, he was concerned for the people of Judah because he is raised up as a prophet speaking to the people in Judah, the elite, and all the people who have not forsaken God. They have turned their backs on God. And if anyone, if any group of people have experienced God at a level that many of us we read about, we wonder, could this happen with us? It's the people of Israel. How do you experience God when there is a cloud of smoke leading you? You're going through the Red Sea. The whole sea stands up at attention. And the people are able to walk through the Bible says on dry ground. We are hungry, God. You're hungry? I'm testing you. He sends a quail. God, we're thirsty, Moses. Go speak to that rock. And he just brings water out. They can even go to the mountain, Exodus 19 and 20. And they see the cloud covering the mountain and they hear God speak. They know he's there. They say, Moses, we don't want to come here. Brother, you go talk to him, and then you bring that back to us. Experience. The people of Israel, they experienced God, and the parents were supposed to tell the kids, who were supposed to tell the kids, who were supposed to tell the kids about who God is. But now you get to Jeremiah, the people have totally forsaken God. They have done their own thing. And if you go read Deuteronomy 28, God says to Israel, if you obey me, these blessings will follow you. But if you disobey me, here are the curses that will come your way. And one of those curses would be exile. The land I promised, I'm going to put you out. And this is what Jeremiah prophesied and lets the people know you are about to be evicted from this land. And it's all because of your sin. But here in our text, Jeremiah speaks about life's highest aim. Life's highest aim, and that aim is to understand and know God. Let me say that again. Life's highest aim is not wealth. It is not a bunch of degrees. It is not a vacation home at the beach or the mountains. Life's highest aim is to understand and know God. So again, I ask, how well do you know God? That's good. How well do you know him? Some people don't know him at all because they're unconverted and unsaved. I'm a southern boy, so I have to say this. <laughs> yes, y'all know that. I hope you know where I'm going. In the South, everybody says that I'm a Christian. Gentlemen, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. They're just as unconverted yep. and unsaved as anybody. That's right. They have heard language, maybe from a parent, that says this is who we are, but there is nothing in their lives that show our worship is Jesus. They're unconverted. That's some people. And 
Let me say this. They're even in our church. In any churches around here. Some people know him casually. Many gods are mere acquaintance. We talk to each other every now and then. But we don't spend time with one another. Some people know him informationally. In other words, they know they know Bible doctrine. Like they like to talk about infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. They want to pontificate about the doctrine of election and all of these things. They, 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 they want to be able to recite by heart the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. They know information about him. Some know him religiously through their activities. I, 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 I make sure I feed the, the poor and the, the homeless at Thanksgiving. Or I serve on these serve teams. And so I know God through my service. But then there are those who know him spiritually. Okay. This is what I'm going to get at because Jesus says in John chapter 4, true worshipers are those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. This person can tell you how it feels when the Holy Spirit moves in and around them. Now, I know that we are reformed and we are, let me just say reformed. <laughs> and, 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 and we have this information, but dare I say it, I believe that there is an element of our relationship with the Lord that's missing because we just want the intellectual, but we forget that he meets us emotionally and, and where we are in our souls. This person, and I, I long for it even more, so I'm saying this, I'm not talking down on you, I'm talking even to myself. I want to experience God more in this way. Being able to emotively describe how it feels when the Lord moves in and among my life. And so the theme for this sermon series, for each week we have, this is our theme. Knowing God means sharing a personal relationship with Him. Now let me say this. Your faith is personal, but it's never private. Yeah. Your relationship is personal, but it is never private. So to think that your faith is just about you and Jesus and nothing else, you're missing the whole concept of what it means to be the church. But yes, you have to, I have to make a personal decision to be in relationship with him, but I can't make that decision apart from his work in me first. Knowing God means sharing a personal relationship with him. Consider the husband and wife who have been married decades. You guys have heard me often talk about my grandparents. They were married 76 years before my grandfather died. They knew each other in a way that my wife and I, we always talk about it. We long to foster this in our 23 years. It's just 23. We got a long way to go to 76. But the one thing for people who have been married for decades, they don't know their spouse intellectually only. To just sit and be in a relationship and say, I just know things about you, that is a black relationship. It is so much more. So much more than just information. It includes all of me. It's like a husband knowing a wife the way Adam knew Eve. The word for new here in the Hebrew is the word Yadah. Yes, sir. 
is the word yadah, and it speaks to a deep connection with relational interaction. I love it. Even after, what was it, Genesis 3, when sin entered, I think it's Genesis 4, the Bible says Adam knew Eve, and she gave birth. So this word, but no, even speaks of the sexual intimacy between husband and wife. We know this for those of us who are married. There's no deeper way of understanding and knowing one another than through that intimate connection. And this is the word used when God talks about us knowing Him. That level of intimacy, it speaks of plumbing the depths of someone's reality. Look at what Isaiah says in Isaiah 43 and verse 10. He says, God says, You are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration. And my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may what? Know and believe me. And understand that I am he. No God was formed before me, and there will be none after me. The reason we're able to know God, friends, is because of the atonement. The atonement. The atonement speaks of the process by which two parties are made at one with one another. Two parties that were ostracized and alienated from one another because of the atonement are now brought together. God and people are now reconciled to one another, and that's only because of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only reason we're able to be reconciled, as Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 5. This is the only reason we can be reconciled to God without Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection, salvation, and being able to know God will be impossible. So, a person who is unconverted asks them, do you know God? They're like, yeah, I know God, but that's the God of your own children. That's the God that they fabricated. That's an idol that they're worshiping. But, but to know the true God, the God who created heaven and earth, to know Him, we must know Jesus. We must trust in Jesus. Our hearts must be open to Jesus for us to be able to know and have a relationship with the Lord. So as we look at these verses, here we're going in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. First, I'd like for us to investigate this. To know God, we must reject worldly reasons for boasting. This is in verse 23. To know God, we must reject worldly reasons for boasting. And the final thing I want us to investigate is this, the dimensions of true knowledge. Verse 24, the dimensions of true knowledge. So let's begin. Let's talk about life's highest aim. Our first point, to know God, we must reject worldly reasons for boasting. Verse 23, Jeremiah writes, this is what the Lord says, the wise person should not boast of his wisdom, the strong should not boast of his strength, the wealthy should not boast in his wealth. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9, he gives many indictments. If you go back to the first verse of this chapter, he gives many indictments and shares what that judgment will be based on those indictments. Friends, we must understand this. I know we live in a culture that minimizes sin, but God will always judge sin. The beauty for us as believers he already judged our sin, past, present, and future on the cross. 
And even because we still sin, and now there is a way for us when we sin. First John 1 9, and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But let it be known, friends, God does not wink at or turn or, or is blind to sin. That's right. So we see all of this stuff, and I'm not telling us to go out here and just look at everybody who's saying, like, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. And, you know, we just want to do that with people. Right? And we want to condemn everything. We'll just look at someone else's sin and don't think I'm not sinning that way, so they must be worse than you. No. But we need to understand that God does not turn a blind eye to sin. So here in Jeremiah chapter 9, the covenant people of God, going back to Deuteronomy 28, God said, if you obey me, one of the blessings of their obedience is that they would be in the land and flourish. But one of the reasons that they would be put out of the land was their sin. And Jeremiah, if you go all the way through here, the people are saying, well, we ain't going to be in exile for those 70 years. And Jeremiah said, no, 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 no. We're going. It's because of the sin, our sin. But in these two verses, God exhorts the people to seek what is truly worthwhile in life. To seek what is truly worthwhile. In verse 23, God rejects the usual grounds for hosting. And if we look at verse 23, he can be talking to us today. He says, we must reject worldly wisdom, worldly strength, worldly wealth, and boasting in those things. So let's look at each one. First, God says the wise person should not boast in his wisdom. This is like a person bragging about all the degrees that they have hanging on the wall. <laughs> and again, y'all have heard me say this. My wife and I went to an area where we learned that people have more than PhDs than anywhere else that I have been. So we got more degrees than the thermometer in this place. Like, you know what I mean? Again, there's nothing wrong with degrees, but we, so we think about boasting in that. Right, it's, it's you going into your office and, and it's nothing wrong with you having your degrees on the wall, but it's looking at them and look at what I did. It is, it is you looking, us looking to move up and so we, we take these new certifications to get more certified in something that will add more money in our pockets and, and we are just achieving, achieving, doing and doing and we look at that stuff and we post it. All the stuff that we have uh, uh, attained, and it gives us a sense of pride. Again, I don't want you to answer this, but how many of you take pride in the degrees you have on the wall? How many of you take pride in it? Again, I want you to do well in school. And we tell our kids that do well in school. But do we look at that stuff and be like sizing people up? I got three degrees, you got a half a degree. If you're gonna have a half a degree, <laughs> you got a half a degree. Oh, I'm better than you. I'm more qualified to be in here than you are, because I got more degrees, and because I'm more qualified, I should have that position. I should have that job, and you should not have boasting, boasting. But God shows us that we should not boast in our wisdom. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. He says, For the word of God is, excuse me, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. God destroys worldly wisdom that stands opposed to him. Next, God says, the strong should not boast in his strength. This is the one who boasts in of their power, prominence, and platform. Hubris or excessive confidence permeates our society. And for me, as a guy who loves sports or enjoys watching sports, when I see many of the prominent athletes in whatever sport, and they get in front of a mic, and let's say they are the best player, or we make them the best player uh, in that particular field. And you can just see the excessive confidence that comes out of this person. That's like, yeah, like, yeah, I know I'm, they may not say I'm the best, but they're like, can't nobody guard me, can't nobody do what I do. So I should be paid accordingly, like I'm the best in this field. But it's just not sports. I've even seen it with the preacher. Hmm. My Lord. I remember hearing a guy preach, and I'll never forget he said these words. He said, I got 99 problems with preaching that one. My Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. I got 99 problems with preaching that one. In other words, he's boasting in. Right? The platform is gifting strong. Like, I've got this. Like, I'm the one. We should not be a people who boast in strength. And the Bible gives us examples of what it looks like when a human boasts in their own strength. And one such person was Goliath. The text says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 4, it says, Then a champion came out from his camp, from the camp of the Philistines. His name was Goliath. He was from Gath. He was close to seven feet tall. Then in verse 10 it says, Then the Philistines said, I defy Israel's troops this day. Give me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all the Israelites heard these words of the Philistines, they were very, they were upset and very afraid. Now you know the story from Reven. Goliath is boasting, like, how long is I going to fight? I'm going to fight. Send someone who would fight me. Goliath just, and he's, he's called a warrior. No one can beat me. We know how the story goes. David, shorter, smaller of stature. Goliath with sword and shield. David with five smooth stones. Just throws one. And because the power of the spirit behind that stone sunk in his head, he falls, gets his head cut off, he's over. He's dead. This is what boasting and strength looks like. Matter of fact, God was saying to the people, don't boast in your horses. Don't boast in your chariots. Don't boast in the size of your army. Just to know that, go look at my man, I think it's Gideon in the book of Judges. He has a large army, God says, that's too many. That's too many. Whittle that thing down, so that's still too many. Until he got down to 300 men fighting thousands, God says, now we can work. Now we can work. This just lets me know, friends, God can do so much more than little. Yeah. With our weakness. As a matter of fact, the Bible says his strength is perfected in our weakness. 
Finally, God says, the wealthy should not boast in his wealth. We know what this is. This is the person that checks in, logs into their, their, their bank app, and looks at how many zeros are in the account. Right? Keep checking, like, oh, the zeros are still there. Like, I'm, I'm getting a check here, I'm, getting, I'm making money, handle this. Like, I'm, just, I'm coming up. God says, the wealthy should not boast in his wealth. If you're like me, you're repulsed by a wealthy person boasting about how much money they have. Yes. They're always coming up, and you know they're wealthy already, because they're gonna get the, they're gonna get the, 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 the you got the house, car, and they're showing you all of this stuff. They're boasting about, look at this, oh, I, could, I, I literally had, y'all think I'm lying, I had a coach say to us, now he was angry, he probably wasn't talking about his wealth, but he was. He says, I'm going to buy your net worth. He told us that. Now, that was some slavery stuff going on right there, but, but he would say this, like, I'm going to buy your net worth, like, you are nothing to me. Wealth, boasting in wealth. Jesus encountered a, a rich young ruler that came to Jesus with a question, and Jesus says, do this. He says, I've done that. He says, it's one thing that you lack. Go and sell all that you have, get to the poor, and come follow me. The Bible says that this man left sorrow because he had so much wealth. He couldn't let his wealth go. Instead of him having the wealth, the wealth had him. He wouldn't become a disciple of Jesus. So Jeremiah says, boasting in worldly wisdom, strength, and wealth is no good, but it's self-righteousness. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, verse 6, concerning self-righteousness. He said, all of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. I won't do it here, but if you go to the Word study and see what polluted garment points to, it's not good. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. Only perfect righteousness exists. From this standpoint, when it is deposited into every believer upon salvation. This is the perfect righteousness, but it's an imputed righteousness. It's a righteousness that's given to us. We don't inherently have it. This is the righteousness of Jesus that's given to us upon trusting in the Lord. So again, we don't boast in our self-righteousness. Look at what I am. Look at what I can do. My wisdom, my, my strength, and my wealth. No, boasting the righteousness that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would say in Galatians 6 and 14, I'm not boasting in anything except the cross. That's my boasting. There was a story of a woodpecker who is pecking at a tree, going hard at a tree. You hear it too. I don't know if you guys remember when you're waking up to a woodpecker who's pecking at a tree. You know, somebody when you bring that woodpecker, you know what I mean? He's just going hard at this tree, right? He kept picking until one day lightning struck the tree and split it in two. But what did the woodpecker do? The woodpecker thought he's Mr. Big Stone. He's like, he stepped back and said, look at what I did. I just split this tree because of my prowess of picking. But he was not anything big because something bigger had, and more powerful had showed up to split the tree. In our social media culture today, our likes and 
our followers makes us think that we're something we are not. I know some of you may not be on social media, but some of us are. And dare I say that if we're honest, we like looking at our posts and see how many people like the things that we post. I don't know what it does in our soul, but it makes us feel like we are something's happening. Or for me, even when I get on YouTube and see that our sermon is posted, how many people watched? Now that's relative because watch can be two seconds. <laughs> Literally. But you got hundreds of people that looked at this sermon. Hmm. There must be something. <laughs> something must be happening here. But friends, none of what we accomplish, that's right. none of what we do, ever originally, ever solely originates with us. Whatever we are, whatever we have, whatever we can do, we must fall on our knees and say, God, I thank you. Because it's from him. I always say this, LeBron James should be the first one on his knees every day, praising the Lord. Not because he's the NBA's all-time leading scorer, but not because he, he's 6'8", 6'9", 260 pounds, but it was God who formed him in his mother's womb, giving him this ability to do what he does. And he would not even have the money that he has unless God had unlocked the vault and said, you can do this and make that money. That's the problem, but it's the same thing you and I. No, we don't have to have billions of billions, but it's the same the fact that you get a paycheck, the fact that you have a roof over your head, That's right. the fact that you have, uh, you're going to have a meal put before you, all of that is a reason to say, God, I thank you. It has nothing to do with it. It doesn't start with us. We shouldn't boast in this stuff, but we are a boastful people living in a boastful culture. Yeah. We must repent. We must reject all the reasons for boasting. Finally, I want us to investigate the dimensions of true knowledge. Jeremiah writes in verse 24, but the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Amen. That I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. Friends, God desires for us to know him. That's the key. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know him so much that he became a man himself and walked among his people. The Lord Jesus is the physical representation of who God is because he is God. The boasting that we should do is boasting that we know the Lord. That's the only boasting. Psalm 34 and 2 says this, I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. As Jeremiah says, to know the Lord is to know his ways. Now, we're going to talk about this. What does it mean to know his ways? We're not going to talk about this thing, but we're going to get to it. To know his ways, his commandments, and to also do justice to the poor and the needy. To know God. Instead of boasting in what we have, Instead of boasting on what we have, again, our boasting should be that we know the Lord. But what does he want us to know? The text says, 
that we should know who the Lord is. I could stop right there and preach for two hours on who the Lord is. That's right. Not who we think he is, but who the Lord is, how he has revealed himself, who, has, who he has revealed himself to be. Know who the Lord is, that he is a God who shows faithful love, justice, and righteousness. For the text says, for he delights in these things. God expects his covenant people to do this, to show faithful love, to do justice and righteousness. Isaiah, he, he was saddened by the fact that these virtues used to exist in Jerusalem, but now they have left. It's not there anymore. For he writes in Isaiah 121, he says, the faithful time, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murders. See where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. He embodied all of these attributes and these virtues totally and faithfully. This was promised all the way back in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, where he writes, Look, the days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will raise up a righteous branch for David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, Jeremiah prophesied this, but now we know on this side of the cross that what he prophesied has become a reality. And it is a reality. Because this righteous branch has come. And because of what Jesus accomplished, what he did for us by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, we now understand this. We have a way that we could know God. Have you ever gone to the movies and watched the movie regularly? But then watch that same movie at the IMAX yes. in 3D. The difference. <laughs> When you're now with the IMAX, you realize like you're in Africa, you're just you're moving around because stuff is so real to you now. Things are clear and you realize you really didn't see that much when you went to Washington for the first time regularly. It was only when you went to the IMAX and saw it in 3D that you saw all that the ones who created the movie wanted us to see and reveal. Friends, when God calls us to know and experience him, he's not content with the regular viewing. He wants us to know him in IMAX 3D. But I feel like too many of us are just good with the regular. It is enough for us. But God wants so much more for us. He wants that IMAX 3D experience with him. So what are the dimensions of true knowledge? I will give you three. The first is intellectual. The first is intellectual. This is knowing the truth about God. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. His people 
the sheep of his pasture. So this is knowledge. This is gaining information. The truth about who he is. What does this presuppose? This presuppose that we regularly spend time here. We regularly spend time here. The second is volition. This is trusting, obeying, and worshiping God in terms of that intellectual truth. It is volitional. It is choosing to obey him on his terms. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's that word, work out, volitional. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So volitional, the last dimension is moral. This is practicing justice and love. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. True knowledge of God is intellectual. True knowledge of God is volitional. True knowledge of God is moral. Not the morals that we create, but morals as God has laid out in his word. But we then put them into practice. By practicing justice and loving others. Friends, I'm not saying this to you just to get a bunch of head knowledge. Because I'm sure most of you in here will read me under the table. You got information. The question is, will we practice it? Let's pray. Mm -hmm.